So uh, welcome to Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and um, we're here in the studio today. Um, in our first pre-recorded segment, I don't. Maybe we won't include that when this goes live, Logan. I don't know, <laughs> but um, uh, we're here with Lynn and Felipe and Billy, and um, I'll let you guys introduce yourselves more fully. But you guys have just been um, speaking, talking, organizing <laughs> in some cases. Uh, this good food, good food festival, right? Is that the the name of the conference? And um, talking about issues of urban agriculture and food systems and how all those things link together. And I'm really excited to have all of you guys on the show. Um, I have some questions. <laughs> um, and uh, about how food systems intersect with politics and bigger questions. And so, you know, the show always covers issues of architecture and politics. So I'm excited to throw some food into the mix and, and tease out all of these intersections. So, um, yeah, maybe maybe we can go uh, around the table here and, and introduce you guys. Um, so I don't know who wants to start. Lynn? So I'm Lynn P. Muller, and I'm happy to know these guys from uh, this event that I just coordinated, which was uh, a food policy action, a day of action. And uh, we covered a lot of different topics uh, relevant today, from the Farm Bill to labor and fair wages and urban agriculture climate change and uh, really we were very pleased with the turnout we got a lot of people to come and uh, think about how food is politics and uh, how people in the city and our urban communities can get together and actually um, it's a process people have been coming together around food politics for a long time but um, it feels particularly prescient now uh, especially with the budget being revealed this uh, past few days and uh, a look at the Farm Bill, which is a critical piece of legislature and budgeting that uh, affects everything about the way that we eat. Yeah. So I'm happy that uh, we got to have Felipe doing a talk on labor and uh, food in, in a lot of different aspects of labor. But, you know, I think labor is really unknown to a lot of people. Uh, we, we really, now we have a lot more awareness about where our food comes from, but we often don't think about the hands that our food passes through and especially the service industry. And I think this is also really relevant um, today when we think about immigrant and ethnic communities that are basically in the shadows in a lot of cases. Um, so I'm happy to have those conversations. And we had an excellent, excellent panel on that yesterday. And Billy, um, who has been involved with urban agriculture, which is um, clearly a big and growing movement in Chicago, um, and obviously affects our built environment, as well as our, I think, our mental health. Uh, the way that we view the city and, you know, a lot of arguments for the city of the future. Yeah. Felipe, you want to introduce yourself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my name is Felipe Tenik-Matasans. I'm with the Restaurant Opportunity Center of Chicago, um, and it's, which is part of uh, Restaurant Opportunity Centers United. And I'm um, the affiliate director there. 
and uh, yeah. And for I'm, for listeners yeah. who don't know, what what is the Restaurant Opportunity Center? Yeah, so we're 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 what's called a worker center. It's pretty new within the labor movement. Uh, they've only been around about two decades, but they really came out of the the need because there's been a vacuum within low wage labor. There's been nobody really organizing it. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's be getting more attention, but before it came out of that 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 space, and so really they're they they're not we're not a union. But we're we still fit within the labor movement, and really they they started inception. The inception of it was to address a lot of the working conditions in, in those low wage industries, and so we've been in Chicago since 2008. But our uh, origins start in 2001. There was a restaurant on top of the trade towers called Windows on the World. Mm. Those workers actually start the ones that survived, because uh, quite a few unfortunately died in that incident. Uh, the ones that survived started the Restaurant Opportunity Center of New York in 2002. And so since then, uh, we've grown in multiple cities. Um, but mainly we work to build power um, for restaurant workers, and primarily we're trying to improve wages and working conditions. So I guess the fun part is, is that we're unique even in the worker center movement space because we actually organize and work with employers, we work with the consumers. So I think that's something that's unique and interesting about the type of work we do. Yeah, that's but, awesome. It's yeah. like uh, holistic organizing. <laughs> yeah, I just, I mean, you're the architect, right? We were talking about systems. I mean, yeah. for us, I, I look at it as, as how do you change a system? And you can't look at it with uh, narrowly. You have to really look at who are all the stakeholders. Yeah. So, so that's what I think is really exciting about what we do. Yeah, very cool. <clears throat> and, and Billy. Yeah, so um, I'm Billy Burdett. I am the executive director of Advocates for Urban Agriculture. That is a uh, coalition of individuals and organizations and businesses that um, are all working together um, to support and expand sustainable agriculture um, across the Chicago area, um, whether it's you know people just growing in their backyards or their back decks, um, all the way through community and school gardening and for-profit uh, urban farming businesses. Um, so we kind of approach that through three main ways. We have um, an advocacy working group that primarily works on policy, uh, usually local you know, city policy, but we've also collaborated with others on the state level mm-hmm. and, and um, definitely looking at collaborating on the national level, especially now. Um, and, you know, also with the advocacy part, advocating for best practices for um, urban agriculture, especially when it comes to things like livestock. People are getting a lot more interested in raising chickens and uh, bees and goats. And uh, we see it as, as really essential that we get best practices out there to all of those people mm-hmm. so that, you know, people don't jump into s- stuff that, you know, right. could ultimately cause a backlash because we actually have some decent rules in the city when it comes to livestock. So that sort of thing. And then we, we work uh, as well to just kind of pull together this whole um, very vibrant, growing community um, across the city. And there are all these different projects that are doing amazing things um, on all different levels of, of urban agriculture, but a lot of them don't know each other. And, um, you know, for, so 
our we, we say our, our job is being the hub for the the community so that people can support each other and and you know share resources and things like that we do a lot of events and um, other other stuff uh, across the city to pull people together and then we also uh, the final thing is resources we, we try to put together informational resources and tools um, to help people who are interested in urban agriculture so we've got a urban agriculture resource guide on our website we have we started a few years ago the Chicago Urban Agriculture Mapping Project, which mm -hmm. uh, maps gardens and farms all across the city. Um, so lots of projects. Yeah, that's <laughs> very cool. Yeah, See, uh, a powerhouse trio. It's great. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I guess uh, I, I want to start from a place. Um, you, I, I have to say, like, I've, I'm a little skeptical, and I think for all of the wrong reasons of, of urban agriculture. And uh, the main reason for my skepticism, right, is as I teach at IIT and, um, you know, I'm talking to architects all the time. And for, for as long as I can remember, every year in architecture school, there's like five urban agriculture projects. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, Lynn, you mentioned that this is becoming something that's like sort of in the ether, right? And and you definitely, you see it. Everyone's talking about eat local, eat local. I, I used to teach urban <laughs> agriculture at IIT. Yeah, see, it's a, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> 2008. <laughs> yeah, so like you have all these architects and, um, you know, it's like they've discovered it for the first time and they're like, oh my God, there's all these empty lots. And what if we just put food <laughs> What if we just grew food on the empty lots? It would take care of all the problems. And it's like, well, yes, but like, you know, there's reasons why that that, that doesn't happen, right? And they're, they're usually really bad reasons, but there's still things that we have to overcome, right? Like all of these uh, issues are, are deeply complex. And so um, I'm really excited to have you guys in the studio because the question isn't like, one of coming up with the idea for urban agriculture, right? The question is, how do you address those complexities and like, you know, make something that can um, affect system change? Um, and as much a, as good as architects are at analyzing systems, um, they're, they actually tend to be really bad at like figuring out how to how to change them, right? Like uh, architects are really good at uh, columbusing. I love this word, columbusing. <laughs> so, um, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk about some of those, those complexities um, so I can um, do away with this sort of like unfair skepticism that I've had in my head from seeing sort of like amateurish uh, attempts at what you guys do. Um, um, all the time, <laughs> and and especially to combine it with uh, issues of of labor and and the the more full um, economic picture of how these systems operate. Um, so I I, I guess um, just to kick us off, like if you had an a, a piece of advice for someone who is just sort of entering into this world with fresh eyes, um, and thinks that they've sort of discovered. Uh, an amazing thing and they have discovered an amazing thing right but but what what would you tell them right like uh you mentioned that you provide some resources but but how do you set someone off in the right direction on, on this kind of thing because it's really easy to kind of i feel like go go on a fall go on a false start yeah mm -hmm. well i would say uh connect with the ua i mean we we really try to be uh you know, not just a hub, but like a portal for yeah. people who are who are you know newly interested in uh, in urban agriculture, because it's a great way to just get a 
sense for the, you know the lay of the land. You know what what's going on across the city, what organizations exist, what sorts of projects there are already happening. Um, Maybe you could give some examples. What I think is fascinating, what we were just talking about in the car, is what urban agriculture is actually the reality of what it is because I think there you know you have perceptions of it from an architectural right. perspective which from are the, undoubtedly incorrect well <laughs> I? I don't think there's any right or wrong yeah. but I mean you're looking at it from an urbanist building structural point of view mm-hmm. there's a, a workforce development component there is the the kind of um, reclaiming the city yeah. component I think there are a lot of tech. There's a lot of technology entering this space, and so I'd be interested to hear. Um, in in fact, you know, at our our event this past week, uh, these past few days, um, we had some really big scale growers that are in the urban agriculture space, which may or may not match with your vision. And 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 at the at the same time, we had some of the the, the most grassroots kinds of people yeah. who are who are doing it at their in their backyard. So I'd be curious to hear, you know, what this what how you would describe the scope. Oh man! In in the city of Chicago, the scope uh, is is very broad. Um, it and it it just keeps on getting broader. So. Lynn mentioned, um, you know, some of these larger uh, scale operations. These are, there's um, Gotham Greens, uh, which uh, got established, it actually started off in New York City, um, but they uh, they opened up this massive um, uh, greenhouse, hydroponic greenhouse um, operation on the rooftop of uh, the Method Soap uh, Factory yeah. in, in uh, Pullman. Yeah. And uh, you know, huge, huge investment. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what their <laughs> their startup budget was, but it was it was intense. And I think it's seventy five thousand square feet, which makes that the the biggest um, uh, hydroponic or at least hi- rooftop hydroponic operation uh, in the world. Wow. Um, so there's that on one end. And they're franchised from other cities. From New York, yeah, mm-hmm. New York City. And so just to, like, put it into perspective, for, for me, like, how, how how much food is that, <laughs> right? Um, you know, I'd, I'd have to go back and, and, and look at uh, the, the uh, you know, how many pounds they're putting out per year. Yeah. Uh, but it is significant. And, and it's it mostly allows... leafy greens, which have a short ter- growing cycle. I see. Right. It allows for year-round production, which yeah. is huge. Yeah. I mean, in a in a climate like ours, you know, that makes just a huge difference. Um, but you know, they've got uh, a really solid uh, distribution setup. I mean, they're selling at Whole Foods and places like that. But they're also starting now to reach out to, you know, other uh, franchises that typically haven't been, you know, these uh, beacons of of you know, super sustainable local food. Right. And so they're trying to, you know, to kind of reach different markets, mm-hmm. um, including, you know, the less high-end, you know, upper yeah. middle class, liberal um, sort of markets. So, you know, th- that's at one end. At the other end is kind of how the uh, urban agriculture movement in Chicago started, um, which at least 
in this most recent phase, because before Chicago was actually a, a, a major um, hot spot for the the uh, Victory Garden movement right. during World War right. II, which was really amazing, like really impressive. I yeah. Mean, so we're producing like 40% of the nation's produce at their peak. But I, yeah, I'd never thought about the Victory Gardens as urban agriculture yeah, before, right? Absolutely. But, uh, it makes total sense, though. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, you know, because I, I guess that's what I'm always trying to tease out is like, you know, um, in all things, right, is like, what's the what's the difference between like the, the fad sort of uh, and, and the thing that's going to make a lasting difference? Mm-hmm. And, and oftentimes those those things are the same thing. But um, like the question is like, h- how do you how do you really pull out the the good stuff um and it always helps to historicize so that's a a great example but i think you also have to i mean one thing i'm not hearing one thing i would also point out is like who who do you see yeah so uh, agriculture i mean right now agriculture seems to be a pretty like male white male dominated industry and it's not necessarily true um it it, so i mean i just want to pull that out there too because that's that's what i often think about Pretty much in everything. <laughs> like, what's my matrix? I'm like, if it's all men, I'm like, okay, well, why are there not women? Or, yeah. or why are there not, like, gender nonconforming or different identities uh, involved? Or, you know, why, like, I see the obsession. My, so I'm skeptical, too, but usually my skepticism comes from, like, oh, there's this food access and let's go help out these poor people. But the poor people themselves aren't leading that. They're not creating that space. It's somebody... Yes inherently coming in and so what i would uplift and that when you don't want to talk about structures like that's what i'm interested in I'm like what is that inherent like imperialistic approach yeah. that we, we we can't it's like part of the american process where we just want to like dominate and and, and and instill ourselves in places that sometimes we don't belong here here so I, I like to pull that out too because that's naturally where my skepticism comes into play it's like we have to ask these questions and again it's not to demonize folks right some of us just don't know right and that's that's okay mm-hmm. but what i do see is a lack of conversation oftentimes because even at the good food festival we were like the only group uh, only panel really talking about labor at yeah. all uh, mm-hmm. which is just we want to feel good about sustainability but what got us in this huge environment and i have an environmental background i mean i'm not gonna sure. like, get too technical <laughs> here but you know from what i've seen across the Right, I'm tapping the table. I was told not to. <laughs> I'm a tapper. Uh, <laughs> my fingers are tap dancing over here. Um, <clears throat> what what I've seen and what I'm really nervous, not necessarily nervous, I'm just fearful of is, is definitely like an environmental science background is is what we see with the degradation of environment. And uh, that's just, we just, it's, it's gotten exponentially worse. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of it inherently goes back to a lot of these just basic questions we don't want to ask. So we talk about sustainability. Well, the for-profit and a lot of these large, it's not just blaming for-profit, I'm just saying a lot of these large, large corporations and entities that reaped out um, and didn't really care about environmental degradation. Well, the reason they didn't is because, you know, if you explore externalities, they just didn't measure it. They just like, you know what, we don't want to measure this because if you don't pay attention to it, it's not important. And then we don't have to be accountable to it. Um, I see that being replicated even now. So, yeah, we want to have great agriculture and, yeah, we want to have healthy food. But again, we don't want to go down and really address what sustainability means. Right. So I just want to lift that up and I'll stop talking, but well, I just want to lift know, that up too, you know. I was shocked the first time when I actually 
had um, a framework for thinking about the input structure of food production. And I learned the role that labor plays in that, in terms of the, the cost input structure. And when you go to your farmer's market yeah. and you see um, that there are uh, tomatoes, for example, that are $5, $6 a pound, and you're confronted with these prices, um, and the farmer's market's a really sticky place for me because I've worked a lot in farmer's markets. That's how I got my start uh-huh. in food systems work. And I, I am definitely always on the side of the farmer every time. And I don't ever argue that the, that the price that, that they offer they sh- is too high because I understand there are labor inputs. On the other hand, now that I'm a consumer yeah. and I've got a family to feed and we're stuck in the mire of the early 21st century. <laughs> right. And I'm, I'm looking at how to spend my, my food dollars. Um, you know, it just doesn't go very far at the farmer's market. And I understand that that is definitely, there was a great piece written years ago um, by a woman in, in um, San Francisco called Why Are Farmer's Markets White Spaces? And I think these are some of the, the questions that we unpack a little bit about when we, when we start talking about food, we start talking about um, cost structure, the labor involved, all of the hidden inputs. But, but the connection to labor, I think, is really um, not known. And especially with things, so you mentioned Gotham Greens. That's mm-hmm. also very interesting because it's highly mechanized. Mm-hmm. I haven't been there, but I've, I, I know their production. I know their, um, their process. Um, and, um, of course, they're creating jobs. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure they were lured to Chicago because of that. But on mm-hmm. the other hand, it's a very um, technological system that's yeah. growing those greens. It's entirely different than uh, you know what we're used to seeing uh, in 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 Chicago and in, in the urban agriculture community here. It's a pretty new thing, um, and it, I think that they are employing somewhere over fifty people, uh, if I'm remembering this correctly, which is impressive, um, especially for uh, an urban agriculture operation. I mean, you know, a, a big part of that's just a, a a function of you know available land for the outdoor uh, growing projects. Typically, it's pretty difficult to come across you know a large amount of contiguous land uh, where you can have a large scale growing operation. Um, so you know that's uh, that's the way that we see it. You know with with some of these larger operations. Um, and I mean Gotham Greens again. I don't want to focus entirely on their on them because there are a number of other. Uh, similar um, operations, you know, we see that fitting into a much bigger um, and, you know, diverse uh, urban agriculture landscape out there. Um, You know, there's so much (laughs) here to unpack. It's kind of like, I don't really even know where to begin, (laughs) you know, in talking, you know. Just open the box. (laughs) (laughs) Let let it flow out. (laughs) Right. But I mean, actually, you know, I don't want to name names here. Uh, Gotham Greens is not one of them, um, but you know there there have been recent conversations in the last year uh, between AUA and um, and Felipe and um, uh, ROC, um, you know about about labor um, in the urban agriculture community as it evolves from being 
you know, these community gardens and these nonprofits that, um, you know, establish growing sites and have training programs and educational uh, youth development programs, which are all great and actually do address some of these other uh, questions about, you know, um, uh, getting more, much more community buy-in um, in, in a lot of parts of the city. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, there's been this evolution now where it's expanded beyond that world, and we're starting to see more straight-up for-profit ventures uh, coming about, including a lot of these indoor, larger-scale, year-round uh, uh, greenhouse uh, and other indoor operations that don't have don't involve any sunlight at all right. where you know vertical uh, farming with hydroponic techniques and aquaponics where you know they're raising fish like tilapia and using the waste from the fish to provide nutrients to the uh, vegetables that they're growing yeah I, I'm great I really I feel like I have to say something about this jump, love, please jump on it I love what you're saying because we're, we're saying unpacking so like when I was talking about sustainability and what I wanted to pull out of that what you're just saying right now Billy too is like we also need to think about what foods are produced. So I, I'm from the restaurant scene. Well, and just to add to something you said, Lynn, just so you all know, uh, we just surpassed, I think, a year or two ago. We spent more of our food dollars in restaurants and food service than in grocery stores. That just happened like two years ago. Um, so we just surpassed that for the first time in our nation's history. So it's kind of interesting about where we choose to eat and how we choose to get our food. But the other part that I want to add about this specifically that I have an interest because I don't hear people talking about it either is what types of foods do we eat? Like, for example, like look at the region we live in. Why are we getting like oranges? Why do we expect to get oranges year round? Maybe it's just unacceptable. If we're going to be really about sustainability, right. we have to ask the questions like, like that. Like maybe we just eat root vegetables because that's where we're at, you know, and you just have to be creative. That's where chefs and all these really interesting folks that think of food differently and can make, uh, you know, make it beautiful and make it delicious and find different ways to cook it. I mean, that's a great service, I think, to a lot of folks. But I do want to lift that up because that's what's happening in a lot of these larger establishments. I, I just know like Mike, they have to make a certain specific type of food, uh, or um, product, I keep saying product, food stuff. How are we going to call it? Like sure. a microgreen, for example. Like, do you eat microgreens every day? I don't. I don't think most people do, but it sells at a very high price at a local restaurant, and that's what they need to make enough money to have a sustainable business. Right. But is that sustainable? You know, my question is, is outside of economic sustainability. It's about environmental sustainability and really asking these questions about do we eat oranges all year? Is it cool that we eat grapes, you know, all, or uh, strawberries that come from one location? So I, I want to sure. lift that up too. Well, I'm really yeah. interested. Oh, I would like to say, one, oh yeah. Just before, <laughs> we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. So we're back on Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and we're here in the studio with uh, Lynn P. Muller. Uh, Philippe Tenek Madisons. Thank you. And Billy Burdett. Burdett. Mm-hmm. All right. Welcome back. And we were been, and Felipe just asked some really good questions and lifted some really important things up, and we're going to keep the conversation going. Um, Lynn, I think you were just about to say. I was about to say that eating is really complicated. <laughs> And I don't, I don't know if it was ever as complicated as it is today. Yeah. Um, there are so many different approaches that people take to their, their and, and it's so personal, 
Right. I mean, we have we have our culture, we have our habits, we have our preferences, we have our innate um, biases. Um, it's so it's so uh, complicated, and you know, I I wish that we all were able to um, be in touch with that, you know, yeah. and having and having dialogues, having opportunities. We a, a, a few years ago when I was involved with Slow Food, we had a, a dialogue on the South Side, which was at the time the director of Slow Food USA came in and um, he, he brought together uh, a group of people, diverse group of people with LaDonna Redman, who's been a longtime activist in the food space. And we, we had a very open circle conversation about what kind of food we eat. Right. And it, it wasn't radical, but yet it, was, it, it felt very vulnerable to mm. share some of the very personal histories that we all brought to our, the, our food identities, if, if you want to call it that. And, um, and we heard, I mean, I think the biggest word that these past three days in this event that I heard was the two biggest words were millennial and disruptor, right? <laughs> so I just, I have to say that, you know, and a lot of that was marketing speak and, uh, but, yeah. but, but for sure in every kind of food marketing trend that I read yeah. and in everything I read, it, I mean, the millennials are really driving, especially the well, food. If there's one yeah. thing that I always say um, and I forget where I heard it because I'd love to give this person credit, but what I, it's, uh, I, I repeat it all the time, and it's generational conflict is a smokescreen for class conflict. <laughs> and yeah. and uh, I, you know, because I, I think uh, a lot of a lot of times, because uh, well, I, I imagine where you're going with this, and I realize I just cut you off. I'm super sorry. Is that millennials consume at, want to consume ethically? Um, I think this is something that a lot of people say is that like millennials are sort of very value driven uh, consumers, um, which I I don't know. I think millennials just want what everyone wants, um, which is like, you know, food, shelter, clothing, like a good quality of life um, and that that's increasingly hard to come by uh, these days. Um, yeah, and and I guess you know when I think about these food issues, it is so complex, and um, you know everyone wants a silver bullet solution, and mm-hmm. like there just isn't one, um, and and that's okay, but you have to like embrace the complexity and like dive in. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> or you think, can shut your eyes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, I think I, a lot of people do that. Yeah, it's. I think that's super a super important thing for people to realize. The sooner that they realize it, the better. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, if you're going into this with a more long-term sort of uh, vision for change, uh, you're going to be a lot less disappointed. <laughs> right. um, and, you know, I've, you know, I've been in the activist world since I was in my 20s, and um, so I've kind of learned that the hard way uh, uh, along the way. Um, but, you know, I think that if people understand, you know, a few things. This is extremely complicated stuff. Uh, there's there's a lot that needs to be delved into because partially, I mean, this is something that is in its infancy. I yeah. mean, it really is. It's um, it's it's a brand new uh, sort of thing, and so it's all sorts of issues start arising out of that as it develops, as it grows. Yeah. And you know, I mean, I I think that the thing that gives me hope. 
Because I think that a lot of people tend to see, um, you know, urban agriculture, a focus on local food, uh, environmental awareness, you know, all these things that kind of feed into the stuff that we're talking about as kind of a fad, uh, you know, a thing that might come and go. I don't really think that's going to happen because I think that the reality of inequality, the reality of environmental degradation impacting our lives, impacting our ability to survive is becoming more and more immediately tangible. And I see these things as just very practical um, you know, ways to address these problems that these very real problems that are becoming more and more tangible. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it makes sense that millennials, younger people, you know, are, are seeing this and they're saying, we got to address this. If we're going to have a future, we got to be moving these sorts of things forward. So I, I think that there's uh, that, that a lot of the stuff that we're talking about has a major shelf life. And, um, you know, the, a lot of the issues that, that Felipe, you know, mentioned are these are the issues that, you know, that have always been there with so many other issues um, in this nation's history. And they're coming up. And what's beautiful about it is that I, I see them starting to be addressed. Actually, the, the forum that or the panel that I was on today about urban agriculture when we opened it up, we opened it up to the audience actually pretty early. And a lot of the questions were about, you know, what role does urban agriculture uh, play in gentrification? You know, how do we get more, you know, how do we get this stuff to be more ground up, you know, mm. coming from the communities um, instead of, you know, being plopped down, um, you know, you know, white people from Logan Square, you know, finding some uh, some available land in uh, East Garfield Park and and and, you know, just kind of getting their whole thing set up there without any community involvement at all. Right. So these are conversations that are happening um, they need to continue happening. Um, I'm encouraged by a lot of the things that are uh, a lot of the programs, a lot of this stuff is nonprofit stuff uh, that's going on. There's an organization called Windy City Harvest. They're part of Chicago Botanic Garden. They have these uh, youth farms. Um, one's in Washington Park. Uh, another one's in uh, North Lawndale. They've got one in uh, North Chicago as well, I think. Um, and they're working with kids, you know, in these communities that are straight up food deserts. Um, where the kids, you know, they know nothing but stuff that's like in a bag or in a can or, or whatever it is. And they're doing some really deep sort of work to try to, you know, bring up a whole new generation um, where, you know, people are aware of where food's coming from, the importance of uh, raising food sustainably locally, the role that that can play in um, uh, revitalizing economies at the truly yeah. grassroots level. I'm going on and on. <laughs> <laughs> Did anybody but, uh, bring up the issue of scale? I find it super, super interesting. I was at a geographer's conference a few years ago. And we, some of us more maybe radical thinkers, were really asking the question about scale because we have this obsession with scaling everything, mm -hmm. making everything big and expandable and it has to go to many locations and that's how we deem successes how big how much money how much mm -hmm. poundage <laughs> whatever however whatever metric you want to measure but did, did anybody i'm really curious about that question about scale and scalability because i actually i don't know what i could say on the line but <laughs> I, I get a sick 
sixth sense in my stomach every time I hear somebody talk about scalability, especially like from funders used to do it all the time with a lot of nonprofits. Right. It's like, how do you scale this? How do you scale this? Maybe I don't want to. Right. Maybe Which that's the point of it. It's interesting. <laughs> I had never thought about it like that. And and maybe that's sort of where you're going with this, all these folks talking about disruption, right? Because I imagine when... when no, no, I mean that purely in the business sense. Yeah. I mean, these people consider themselves, you know, reinventing... Um, scalability <laughs> right <laughs> i mean I, what i just to, th- that's interesting because i mean in this financing fair which is part of this three-day festival is all about food entrepreneurship which is also seen as a tool of workforce development in bronzeville there's a, a food entrepreneurial center there's huh. i mean working and at uh, 1871 we're talking about earlier really trying to get people with a lot of good ideas a lot of family stories about my mama's hot sauce my um my my family's uh, connection to another country. Um, here are here's our food. Here's our business, and we've done the prototyping. Now we want investors to scale up. Yeah. And we're ta- and and the numbers that were floating around in that room were millions and millions of dollars in the next five years. You know. And how you get that money? And when you get that money, then it's based on that scaling. Prediction. So then you have to pay back that loan based on that assumed future cost or future was... worth of your company. So it always has growth and scale in every metric. So that's why I'm really interested in and this conversation. And the city conversation. is is the you know the first one, the city. I mean, people who work at the city are the first ones to to present these panels and these successful entrepreneurs. And I'm not being cynical because I think they there is a lot of value to growing these kinds of businesses in Chicago. And, and especially with the clustering of it and the way that that energy works and the, the knowledge sharing. And so I see that as a way that the, the city of Chicago really believes that it's investing in food entrepreneurship. But eventually, the, as you mentioned, the goal of all of this is to be essentially bought out and, mm-hmm. and corporatized. And that's that's very interesting um, that process that and that that sort of that that goal. Um, you know, yeah. You know, there's a, a way that I've um, just started thinking about this in the last five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so you put a lot of thought uh, yeah, into it. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, as someone who's who's been involved in left politics for a while, right, and and kind of um, left theory more generally, you know, the way that socialists talk about like urbanization, right, is, is as part and parcel of capitalism um, because you need to concentrate workers to, to bring them together for production, right? And, and so when Marx talks about capitalism sowing the seeds of its own destruction, this is one of the ways that he means it, right, is, is that workers are concentrated into an urban environment and to, into factories together and um, you know, and and that lays all kinds of groundwork for uh, workers' cooperation, and also unionizing and other things, other things. Um, so so it it strikes me that when you're talking about like ur- urban agriculture, right? Like this has always been, at least in like classical left theory, a kind of sticking point, right? Like you know, well, what do you do with all the farmers? <laughs> Because they're not really, you know, workers in the traditional sense, and they're also spread out. Um, but, uh, but, but now, um, you know, maybe that uh, urban agriculture is becoming a thing, and, and, you know, we already have like Monsanto and these big corporations. But the question is, how do you organize those workers effectively? It's very difficult to do. Mm-hmm. But, um, 
maybe this opens up new horizons, right? And and now that uh, you know, there's already a social justice component to this at, at the kind of infancy of the process of this um, um, corporatization, um, that there could be some very interesting organizing opportunities um, for organizing urban agriculture workers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that fits into these sort of much older, bigger, arguably theoretical <laughs> conversations. Yeah. Um, so I, what I was saying before was, uh, you know, in this last year, we've had this conversation with Felipe about, uh, you know, as we see these different uh, larger scale operations going, some of them are taking advantage of uh, law state and uh, I think federal laws uh, that um, do not require minimum wage uh, to be paid to farm workers. Um, And that's, you know, that was developed and, you know, regardless of what you think of that, um, that was developed uh, with rural uh, work, farm work in mind. Um, Definitely not like these hydroponic and aquaponic indoor operations where they like can get away with paying people six dollars an hour which is ridiculous um so it's 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 one of many issues that's that's emerged with this very rapidly developing sort of thing and we're really excited to to work um with uh with felipe and others um to address that and you know you know potentially on the you know city ordinance level, uh, ha- uh, implementing um, you know uh, requirements for for at least minimum wage uh, to be paid uh, uh, to workers at, at these. Um, Is there an these urban operations. agriculture sector? I mean, I know licensing has been a big well, yeah. issue. <laughs> That's another quite big question. I mean, how would yeah. you? What kind of business? Is, is it a food production business? I mean, what is, how does urban agriculture fall in the business licensing? It, that's, that's a huge question that our organization is currently working to address right now, actually. Um, there is extremely, uh, an extreme lack of clarity in terms of uh, what, if any, uh, business license uh, an urban farming operation is required to get. There's nothing that's made for urban farms. And this is something that we're seeing all across the country as urban agriculture grows. There's a lack of a regulatory framework that's right. there to address what urban farms are doing because it's, it's just a new thing. Same thing with like shared kitchens and all these other really great innovative uh, things. There's just not a regulatory framework and that needs to be developed. So we're looking at different approaches, you know, possibly um, uh, putting into city law an exemption uh, for urban farms to get a business license, but instead just to register as a business entity uh, at the state level and follow applicable zoning and building code and all that good stuff. Um, But uh, yeah, there's, there's, um, there's a lot of gray area still. We were successful in uh, 2011 in actually getting uh, Chicago's zoning code modified so that it would directly address urban farms and uh, community gardens. And so Chicago, in in that regard and other regards, has been seen as, as a leader in this movement. But in other areas, we're, we're still uh, kind of behind uh, mm-hmm. other cities doing the same stuff. Interesting. I mean, that opens the door, which is really exciting. Um, also, campaign that just started from another worker center that we're part of a, an alliance together. But uh, Rise Chicago, they had just started a campaign to to add a Department of Labor at the city level, which 
I think if if it gets approved, which would actually be within Consumer mm-hmm. Affairs Department, yeah, mimicking um, uh, cities like L.A. and Seattle, and uh, I think New York as well. I think you know those are some of the the structures we can create uh, from a governmental perspective of how to how to help accountability. Because what I, what I lift up to is when we have these conversations, and you're talking about well-meaning, usually people don't start business with like a bad intent, at least sure. in this sphere, you know, we're talking about good food. We're trying to feel good about ourselves. Right. So typically I, I've noticed like people have good intent. Um, but what happens is, is that there's these poorly detailed laws and then there might be some larger entities with a lot of money that come in and will undermine your ability. You know, let's right now we do function a capitalist system. So inherently, from a competitive viewpoint, you're completely at a disadvantage and you're trying to do the right thing. And you can see the struggle here and you can see how that lowers basically in the country overall, we're going a race where we have a race to the floor. Right. The same thing's playing out in, in a microcosm here mm-hmm. in those respects. So mm-hmm. I think that's why having these like really creative ideas, let's create an actual department of labor at the city level because it is so complex. And basically what we, the reason we even folks like us and other groups want something like that is because we have a major enforcement problem. We have laws all over the place that aren't enforced because they're not funded, because within the political sphere, like when you have a political change in government, you put your people in there and you have your viewpoint, your ideology, and that's how government's going to function. There's some departments that can operate outside of that. But oftentimes, if you put the heads in there, uh, then you can stagnate or not move certain pieces that might have been moving with another administration. So putting like a department there and putting more control in the city level, yeah. I think will help us start addressing some of these inconsistencies. And it, it is a question about fairness. Right. I mean, to me, I would, I would, I would love, a, for me, I would rather have the problem of having lots of small entities, uh, different businesses coming up than lots of large entities. Um, mm. Just because again, that, that means to me that there's more individual ownership mm-hmm. versus limited ownership which is you know this larger conversation about yeah. concentration so are, of wealth are we are, are we giving up on federal policy then <laughs> are, are we are we done with that or are we looking just towards the cities now yeah i think that's that's been a strategy that's been winning overall mm-hmm. at least within workplace practices and improving labor standards there's been a lot of victories across the country at the city and, and the smaller level uh but mm-hmm. there there's a lot of very well-funded counterattacks that have been going on that are doing things like preemption, which mm-hmm. means that you can, if, if you passed a, a minimum wage law, maybe at the city, and they pass a preemption law at the state level saying, you know what, no city can now honor its home rule and you have to, you have to pass a wage, a minimum wage increase at the state. That, that's the counter strategy that's playing out too. So yeah. it might be working now <laughs> and has been, but people caught on and now there's a counter strategy to push against it. So right. I, I think we don't, I think the short answer is we don't get to give up on any of it. We right. have to fight at federal, mm-hmm. state, regional, local, hyper-local levels until we have a major massive shift societally uh, and we're just not there yet. But the interesting thing, and I, again, I'm multi, I have dual nationality, like I, I go back and forth between different countries. Uh, what I find really interesting is that there is a large global, global shift there's something going on. I think a lot of people are feeling it. If you are international or multicultural and you talk to different folks from across the world, you do see there's this, there is something happening. I think we've kind of tested the waters as far as we can 
Um, and there's there's definitely some shifts coming on a global scale. I'm not going to talk about them in detail, but I'm interested in that, and I think that that is going to come back. I think really we're going to talk about like things like urban agriculture because a lot of it, at least urban to me, is about self-determination. Mm-hmm. So you can create food where you live if there are if most people now are moving to cities, that trend continues where we keep having these massive cities and urban agriculture is going to grow. If we keep it small and lots of different folks having ownership in that, yeah. that's, a, that's a way to own and determine how, how the fight for food goes. So I, I think that's a really interesting you know, kind of place where yeah. we're in. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's really kind of, if, if not the, one of the most you know, ultimate sort of acts of, of self-determination and empowerment, really, like being able to grow your own food, grow food for yourself, for your family, for your community. Um, I mean, and of course, climate change plays climate change plays into that, uh, where you know, California's droughts are are uh, you know seriously undermining its uh, historic role as you know the the food provider for the country, basically. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there there we see it as as an extremely empowering thing. I mean, especially and you know if it is kept at that community level where you, you know, you, you are able, where we fight that sort of, uh, trend. And I think that's just kind of this sort of expectation and, and, and is often unquestioned, uh, entirely growth, growth, growth. I mean, we want to grow, we're growing food here. (laughs) We want to grow a lot of food, um, and, and keep that thing growing. But, you know, like the expectation for a business, you always have to be growing and that, that inevitably leads to, you know, getting bought out by some big corporation or whatever it is. I'm a big believer in co-ops. I mean, that's that's the big reason why I uh, was involved with the founding of the Dill Pickle Food Co-op in Logan Square. It's, you know, cooperative grocery store, yeah. open to the public, but it's owned by the community. And they're, they're, it, 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 inherent in its model is a questioning of that sort of, that expectation that mm-hmm. you have to constantly yeah. be expanding and... Yeah, yeah. you know, the... the, the the trick, though, right, is that there's this sort of tension, and I think we've been dancing around between uh, scaling, right, and and sta- and and local, uh, and st- and staying um, focused on the community, and um, it's weird, right, because it's almost a kind of false dichotomy in a particular way because like right now we're forced with kind of be remaining local right or becoming corporatized right and and it's this kind of um damned if you do damned if you don't think because you can stay small and, and sort of do the right thing and and um you know but but it also has an element of privilege to it because only people who have the kind of um time and um freedom and money to to sort of remain local can do that and everyone else is kind of screwed like you know so, so the, the question is always how do you how do you how do you blow up that whole dichotomy right because there's a, there's got to be a way where um you can scale up community without losing community um and without it becoming corporate and um like to me that is that is the um that that is the 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 gold standard for what we're trying to get to as a society. Um, I think the whole system's blowing itself up now. We've seen so much polarization yeah. in, in, you know, it, just in almost any 
structure you can imagine yeah. right now. And that that ex- that extreme concentration that's that you know and is uh, it, there's got to be it, the tipping point. Um, I think you know for food in particular, we there, there's always been this goal of not always at, at least since I've been involved in the work. Yeah. To me, <laughs> uh, there's there's always been a conversation about um, how do we fill the gap in the middle. Fred Kirschman is you know bridging the gap. He's he's one of the the kind of agricultural philosophers who who's really talk the most about this and how do we you know we've got we've seen we know the ag consensus the ag um, statistics that there there are growing number of young farmers female farmers minority ethnic farmers small scale farmers we know that there's an aggregation of farmland at the top right and then we're faced with you know 2017 what's going to happen next also you know in the reorganization of the 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 power and influence in this money in this country right and so there's been all this talk about scaling up and and this is exactly what um this is exactly what the usda has had a a a lot of programming to try to address these past you know 15 20 years yeah how do we scale up this production? And um, and I, I don't think that issue is going to go away. I think I think we're we're in a massive reorganization. Um, I think there is a lot of um, there is a lot of interest in new farmer development. I think there's also a lot of crisis in actual food production right now, from everything from the labor to the land, the environmental land, the food quality. Is a, is a terrible problem. The the soil actual quality. the what soil quality the soil quality <laughs> yeah it goes back to food quality and um, yeah basically the overall health of our agricultural and and then even globally the way that the imports and exports are changing um, and so you know what's interesting is you know we we then we come back to you know well, you know the consumer aspect of it. You know, what role do I play as an individual? And I I used to believe that, um, you know, shopping for food could save the world. And (laughs) I I really wish that, I mean, I've kind of grown because I I don't quite believe that anymore. I think that um, I don't ever want to put my, uh, any of my uh, faith into consumerism. I think it has much more to do with the self-action of grow, planting a seed and having the confidence that you can grow something. And I know that that is... <laughs> Metaphorically a, and literally, And, right? and also, <laughs> it's, it's both proletariat and it's elitist at the same time, sure. right? And that's a real conf- another conflict point in this food movement is that, you know, growing your own food takes a lot of time and knowledge yep. and, and, and access. And um, at the same time, it's one of the most empowering things you can do. Sure. So, so bridging those gaps is is really complex, and yeah. there there are a lot of different entry points to that. I mean, I found that the when I um, you know in landscape architecture, for example, when I was teaching urban agriculture, one of the the first things that I wanted the students to do was plant seeds, because if you're going to talk about food, you got to know how to right. You got to at least observe growing something yourself, and I don't know how many of you grow your own food or plants or plant your seeds, but there is, there is a complete lack of confidence in, in that. You know, for example, oh, I planted it and it didn't grow. I'm not going to do it again. And, um, 
you know, as someone I, I and I am a good example of a, of a kid who grew up in New York City in Brooklyn. But I had a children's garden and that was the one thing I loved to do year after year. And so I grew up with the repetition of growing stuff and it not working out every single year. And then again, but the confidence and the structure in place to, to teach me that that's what it's all about. This is about doing it again and again and again. And um, that's, a, that's a life lesson that I've learned in terms of growing food. Yeah. And that the confidence that I have is not that it's going to succeed. It's just that I can do it again <laughs> if, <laughs> if it doesn't work out. Um, yeah. But then – but again, I think it's a real tension point. Um, well – I think that that's a good place to start to wrap up our conversation. Um, Ooh, I want to say one thing. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. uh, sure. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. Just really quickly to what you said. Yeah. Because there was a really powerful moment in our panel yesterday, and and one of the key components, I'll just say it quickly, was that basically you have so to deal with this elitist, you know, these, these approaches. What you have to do is get everybody to an economic means to just breathe. Yes. So meaning, can I just provide my basic needs? And at that point, when you can get everybody to that point, then we can have these conversations. But until then, we're going to always have this conflict um, because people can't participate. The way they're going to be able to participate is when they can take care of themselves. Yeah. And that's going to require that that kind of hitting that plateau. So I just want to point that out. Mm -hmm. You guys are so great. I just want to (laughs) say it makes me feel a lot better about urban agriculture. And, um, you know, I hope all the architects who are listening, um, you know, a lot of times it's the architects and urban planners who end up uh, sort of quarterbacking a lot of a lot of projects and urban initiatives that um, encompass these things. And, uh, you know, when we're pitching things to people or talking to the city, a lot of times we talk about urban agriculture. So I hope um, as you listen to this conversation, you've uh, had some additional food for thought. Um, pun definitely intended (laughs) and also that um, you know you might have some idea of the folks to get in touch with so um, thank you all again for being on the show Um, any any last final quick burning comments no advocates for urban agriculture (laughs) auachicago.org connect with us there (laughs) cool plant a seed plant a seed very good All right. thanks y'all thank you thank you this is WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM, Lumpen Radio, and you're listening to Buildings on Air. We're here live in the studio on this lovely Saturday afternoon in Bridgeport with Marianella. Marianella, I've known for a long time. Uh, well, not that long, actually. Yeah, not that long. Yeah, but uh, through architecture lobby, activism, and um, Marianella, I'm really happy to have you here to talk about this issue of architectural agency. Um, we talk about it. Almost all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, I think uh, you, you bring a unique perspective to it um, because of your background in activism and organizing. Um, but I'll, I'll let you introduce yourself. Tell us about you, Marianella. Cool, yeah. Um, I am currently in graduate school. I'm a, um, doing history and theory at UC Berkeley. Um, but I'm an architect, um, and I'm also a teacher, and I'm an organizer, um, I was trained as an organizer in a labor union, um, UAW2865, um, which is a graduate student workers union um, and in California, in the in the UC system. Um, and I also now do organizing with um, East Bay DSA. Yeah. 
You guys are doing great work on single payer. Right. Yeah. And now moving into housing also. So I'm really interested in architecture, politics, um, teaching, and how all of those things intersect both academically and historically, but also in practice. Yeah. So um, I think we have this question. It comes up all the time in different all kinds of different venues, more activist-oriented architecture venues um, and, and not, but uh, what what is our political agency as architects, right? Mm-hmm. We're kind of, I think you and I both kind of work on the premise of like, you know, ha- I don't know, uh, talking to architects who want to be political mm-hmm. um, but mm-hmm. don't necessarily know how um, or, mm-hmm. or think they do, <laughs> maybe mm-hmm. erroneously, um, if, if I can uh, be sort of, so critical. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I know it's a really like unfairly broad question and I th- we're going to talk about it for like the next half hour, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, just to throw it out there, what is what is the architect's agency? What is the architect's political agency? Yeah, well, I think it's a question that starts in a really interesting place because of how, um, how early on one's uh, professionalization starts as an architect. So especially if one goes to school at 18 to become an architect, um, it's sort of before you have um, a consciousness of your place in the world. And so the way that your consciousness gets built um, into the world is through your sort of professional identity as an architect. Mm. And that identity is not one that is associated with work um, in the way we understand it and sort of labor movements. Yeah, how, which is how relative to the conception of architecture work. Right, so... Um, Architects largely consider what they do part of um, this kind of idea of a gentlemanly profession. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the work um, is not labor. Um, you're not con- you don't conceive of yourself um, as a laborer, as somebody who does work um, for a wage. Um, right. The work that you do is to advance your discipline or your profession or to, um, in some cases, produce a service. Um, in other cases, produce art. Um, but, um, it's, um, you're not, you're taught to think of yourself as a professional and not as a member of the working class. And so, and that starts very early is, is, um, and so then your agency is placed or the, or the way that you come to conceive of your agency when you're trained as an architect, um, is, um, because you don't conceive of what you do as labor, then the agency gets placed in the output. Right. Um, right. And, and what, what it is that you're doing or what it is that you're producing. Which is buildings. Yeah. Which is buildings, right. Um, or, I don't know, installations or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, but those things can um, are, are inert. Um, they, don't, they don't inherently have any kind of agency, even if they, are, if, even if they intersect with things that are political. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, we were we were at this uh, Todd Williams Billy Chen lecture at IIT a few days ago, and I think it it, it brought up a lot of these issues for mm. for us because um you know they were talking about architecture as a service, and you know they kind of presented these five values that they held dear, and and the first one was aligning values, mm-hmm. and like um we made this comment about how like oh man like they are the most inoffensive architects in the world, mm-hmm. right? Like they they do very good work but like um you know the the idea of you know architecture as service mm-hmm. um counterintuitively sort of like uh seems maybe counter to what what we're talking about mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, the architecture as as service um, puts architects in a really sort of um, in a position of um, not being able to create um, for themselves what it is that they do. Right. Uh, right? If, it's, if if you're providing a service um, that in and of itself implies that there has to be a need mm. for you to be able to be able to do something. Right. So you have, if, if you are conceiving of what it is that you do as a service, then you are not, you don't own your agency. Mm-hmm. You don't, the, your agency gets created yeah. when somebody needs something that you can give them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that way, it's a little bit castrating right. uh, for, um, for architects and, um, and devalues, um, architecture or, or makes the people who define the value of architecture and everybody, but architects themselves, right. Um, everybody, but the people who are producing it. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, another thing we talk about a lot that's related to this is the, um, the lack of political language that architects d- uh, like, yeah i want to say dearth but i can never remember if dearth is a lot or a little <laughs> i don't Do know you, i don't know it's a little okay so the the dearth of political language <laughs> and especially around like this issue of power mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. like I, I think it relates because i think people will probably be asking themselves listening to this conversation like if if the architect's agency isn't in the buildings and it's in work like what exactly does that mean sure yeah, yeah. well i think i mean again i i always end up talking about education when I talk about these things and maybe it's because I really care about it and I, I think first and foremost conceive of myself as a teacher um, but um, well I think we can we can look at architecture education and how like extremely um, political projects get taught as p- just form as just being formal and yeah. not being and not being political so we can look at um, for example when um, the futurists get taught in school yeah. or even uh, the work of Archigram um, in in London in the '60s, uh, Super Studio Archizoom in um, in Florence in also in the '60s. Yeah. Um, give our give our listeners who might not be architects some background. Though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they were um, all quite. I don't know if I, to call them countercultural, but I think maybe that's that's like an easy sort of connotation. Yeah. Um, all th- these firms were sort of were producing. Uh, projects, mostly or almost all speculative projects um, that um, sought to challenge uh, or question the status quo and um, particularly a capitalist status quo. But when typically in architecture school, when those even when those kinds of projects are taught, the political um, agendas of them become a footnote right. and they're taught as they're taught as form. Um, and, and yeah, so to get to your question of political vocabulary, um, you, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's very, very, it becomes very difficult for architects to build for themselves a political vocabulary because they, it's hard to locate it in, in the architecture. Right. Um, 
Yeah, I think the question people always ask is like, you know, how how do you how do you translate like what what is the power of design, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that might even be in the description of the show, which is like a healthy skepticism about the power of design, mm-hmm, right? And I and I think that's what I it's like because like you know if we're being honest with ourselves mm-hmm. as, as architects, like the the power of design is I mean it's there it's not nil, sure, but um, also it's a very different thing from like political power. Yes. And I think like power tends to make certain people uncomfortable, but like, um, you know, a a lot of people would be saying that we need to build like left power um, Mm -hmm. for for real. And and that requires workplace organization and a lot of things that are outside of architecture, but things that we can use our architectural expertise to help with, which like is still very abstract. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, I mean, I, I said this thing earlier about the, the thing being inert, like the building being, mm. being inert. Um, and in and of itself it is. Um, and it only, it only gains a kind of political um, connotation if it's being used to some kind of end. So we see this happen, for example, um, in, in fascist Italy, um, San Gimignano was famously re-medievalized mm. as a way to, to coalesce national identity. Interesting. Right. Yeah. And so in and of itself, the, re, like, the refashioning of a facade to look more medieval is neutral. Um, but because it's being used very pointedly in this political sense, it gains a kind of, it doesn't gain an agency, but it, can't, but it becomes a tool for somebody else's agency. Mm. And, but it's not the architects. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's that's the constant question is like, as architects, we're making things that can then be co-opted or abused um, or reinterpreted yeah. um, against our will. And I think that, again, is like a, a kind of castrating thing or it, like it creates impotence because um, because we don't understand the only kind of let me rephrase the only kind the primacy of the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, supersedes everything else. Yeah. Um, there's no, for as much as architects talk about process, they leave the labor of pro- uh, the labor out of that process. Right. Don't recognize the, all of the labor that is included in that process. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I, I mean, are you suggesting that, um, I don't know how to put this, that like basically regaining the kind of architect's agency in this process is like uh, is the thing that can like defend architecture and, the, and and buildings from like these kinds of um, you know co-opting forces. Yeah, I think so. So I'll use like a parallel because I think so. I said I mentioned earlier my training or my training as an organizer comes from union from a labor union, mm-hmm. and uh, but I'm organizing students, student workers who are similarly declassed. Yeah. Um, as architects, right? They don't conceive of themselves as being part of a working class, even though they very much are. Right. Um, if they are, so typically a graduate student worker works minimum 20 hours a week um, and gets paid very, very little. Um, and, um, right, and so they don't conceive of, they conceive of the work that they do, typically if they're in graduate school, as being their research um, and not necessarily they're teaching. Their teaching is a sort of like separate thing that right. doesn't belong um, to their conception of themselves in the world as professional academics. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's quite similar um, as as architects. Um, but 
but in in organizing graduate students, sort of getting them to see that um, if it wasn't for the work that they're doing, they wouldn't even the work as in like the teaching, the labor of teaching. Yeah. Um, first of all, the university wouldn't run. Right. Um, and second of all, they would not be able to do any of the research that they're doing. And it, and in that sense, it becomes very clear. So in in the reason I brought this up and that is that in organizing graduate students, there's a clear line to getting them to see, to conceive of what they do as labor, as work, because um, because it's very easy to get them to see how it enables them to do other things. Right. There's the, With the, architects, there's not such a clear kind of line. Yeah, there's the old saw on the left about how, um, you know, the bosses need you more than you need the bosses. Right, that's <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that's true in architecture, right? Yeah. Um, but in architecture, there's still this kind of like aspirational culture yeah. Um, yeah. that makes it okay or almost desirable for a lot of people to, for example, take unpaid internships at large, very sort of important firms. Right. Um, and that's and that's where it seems like agency can be reclaimed. Yeah. Well, and I, I th- yeah, exactly. I mean, I think. Um, yeah, the al- the alternative to the agency not being in the building, right, is that it's it's like in the conditions of their production, right? Um, which really means like in, in in very concrete terms, that means like uh, struggling for like working class issues, right? Mm-hmm. And like I think probably a lot of people are listening to this being like, oh, like I thought architects are like you know sort of well paid, like it's, sure. it's a very strange thing to kind of think about architects being working class. Um, and I, I, there there is some truth to that. I mean, like at the end of the day, most architects are relatively privileged workers, but. But part of that is because of all the hoops you have to jump through. It uh, ends up um, kind of being a, a, a pool of privileged privileged mm-hmm. people at the end, mm-hmm. um, and, and we shouldn't mm-hmm. ig- we shouldn't ignore that fact. But it doesn't it doesn't really change um, the fundamental power dynamics. They're at the, they're they're very similar. I mean I mean um, mm-hmm. even even like there's a big difference between <laughs> being. Um, you know, close to petite bourgeois and being, um, you know, a, an unrepentant sort of like owner of the means of production. Right, right. Which most architects aren't. No. Even if, and that's um, one of the dangers of of late capitalist culture is that you, the the working conditions make you th- make you think that you have an autonomy over your work mm-hmm. uh, or an uh, sort of. Um, make your own work in a way that um, isn't necessarily the case. There's yeah. like an illusion of choice right. that happens. Yeah. Um, like I'm choosing to take this unpaid internship or I'm yeah. choosing to work 60 hours a week because it's going to be better for me in my career. Yeah. Um, One thing we talk about in the Chicago chapter of the architecture lobby a lot is like work being a consensual relationship, mm-hmm. right? And like um, that that's kind of like almost the the, the ideal situation, but that like it, it, it never is, even if it sort of sometimes feels like it, because because all of your choices are sort of inscribed by mm-hmm. these larger systems, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, that reminds me of this the the right to work phrasing, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, right. That like you you make the choice to work as if it's not yeah a necessary condition for surviving. Yeah, I could. Um, I, I've never thought about there being like a properly left interpretation of that phrase, but there totally could be. Yeah, right? I think so. <laughs> yeah. 
It should be the uh, Chicago chapter's next project. Yeah, right. Yeah, reclaiming the right to work. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, or you should put that in the in the um, Trump dictionary. Yeah, we should. That yeah, that would be really good. That project that we have going. Yeah. yeah. But I think uh, you know the the question is like how how do you build that that power? Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm curious um, to ask you someone with with experience being being doing labor organizing, mm-hmm. um, you know how how you take those things and, and those struggles right um, mm-hmm. to, to the architects right? Yeah, well, it's extremely slow. I think it's going to be extremely slow. I think. Um, I had actually never thought about this in this way before this moment or in the kind of parallels between organizing graduate students, organizing architects, but I think there's probably a lot of them, Um, especially considering the fact that um, graduate students and adjuncts are beginning to unionize across this country seriously now. Yeah. It's 2017. Yale just unionized. NYU is on its way. Columbia is on its way. Um, California College of the Arts just um, adjuncts just there just unionized um, yeah so I think that we have a lot of lessons to learn and and I think so I, I think the way it it starts is by a general discontent which we have that right <laughs> In like who what architect do you know that is like happy um, all the time right. they're like just starting out with their hours and their pay exactly and, and their benefits yeah. and like um, you know having family leave or, or not exactly like, you know these are like issues that um, we can like that aren't strictly architectural yeah. When issues I, yeah I, when I say happy I mean happy with the conditions of their right. labor yeah very few of them yeah I would say because um, generally across the board it's extremely um, it's extremely unsatisfying um, or the conditions are in extremely poor conditions. So um, so I think it starts with a, a general kind of discontent. And then there, there's work to be done in harnessing that discontent and turning it into action. Mm-hmm. And that takes a really, really long time. Yeah. Um, and yeah. A, and a, a certain kind of knowledge. <laughs> yeah, it takes a certain skill that is learned. Yeah. Um, and I think... So I think in this country, there's a large kind of aversion to unions mm. and a large aversion to um, working class politics yeah. and um, even a general kind of lack of um, class awareness or class consciousness. And so we have a lot of work to do in that sense of educating. Um, and um, and it's going to start with conversations like this one. I mean, hopefully with somebody that disagrees, right? Right. Um, or with somebody who doesn't know what they think right. yet. Um, because part of harnessing that discontent, turning it into action, is um, getting to the root of why why it is that people are discontent. Or I think m- more often than not, my experience organizing, it's people who think they agree, right? Um, that that you kind of have to talk to. And that's that's that can be a little trickier. Who think <laughs> they agree, but they don't. Why? Um, I, I don't know. Like, they just like... They, they, well, like you said, these are kind of like learned skills and discourses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there is a fine balance between like, you know, the kind of um, indoctrination into left ritual, which is not like really the point. <laughs> yeah, it's not the point. But um, there's a fine line. And it's like extremely charming, but right. or it can be extremely charming and people yeah. can be extremely charmed by it and then not actually do any work. Right. Um, but yeah, there, there's yeah. A, there's a fine line between like that and then like you know sort of like really genuinely like drawing people into the movement. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I think yeah, and I think um, there are conversations that have to be had that are difficult to have a lot of the time because of 
larger cultures within the profession, specifically not necessarily the discipline, but definitely the profession in which you can't talk about how much money you make or how much things cost. Right. Um, Or or like uh, issues of equity, right? Exactly. And uh, like all, all these other things. Yeah. Which is, like, I guess, the, the next big question, and I, I have an idea of an answer, but I'm, I'm curious to hear what you think, which is, like, um, again, like, if you're a non-architect listening to the show, like, you know, I th- like, why, why should you care, you know? Mm, mm-hmm. and, and because I think a lot of times when we're talking about the, these issues of problems internal to the profession, mm-hmm, it can mm-hmm. kind of seem like a special interest thing. But, yeah. but, I, but I, I don't think that that's how we conceive of it. Yeah, well, I think... I don't know. I don't know about the question of if you're an ar- non-architect listening to the show, but I think I have. A, I think I have an answer about how this would relate to, um, or about why this should matter to architects. And I think architects generally see themselves, and I, you might not agree, but I think architects generally see themselves as like this kind of ostracized or like segmented off, isolated yeah. kind of profession. Nobody really understands what we do, um, or what mm-hmm. what it's good for, or why it matters. And I think starting to think about working class issues and starting to think about the labor conditions within architecture is a way to start binding architects as professionals in solidarity to other professionals or to other workers. Right. Um, and in, in that way, start to break down some of those, yeah. some of those barriers. I, I see. I, I totally agree. And I, I always formulate it like in, in the reverse. Yeah. Though, like um, basically I see like, you know, there's this burgeoning anti-Trump resistance. Sure. Right. And there there is a general discontent mm-hmm. about like the conditions of like work and politics mm-hmm. in this country. Mm-hmm. And like I, I sort of see us just as organizing like the architect section of that resistance. Yeah. Like we, we are architects. So we are thinking about these issues that everyone cares about. But in in the context of our of our discipline yeah. which which then has does have this kind of unique position of then like reflecting recursively onto society in a huge way because mm-hmm. we all live in and work in buildings mm-hmm. so so it does sort of have that double quality mm-hmm. but but mostly it's just like hey like you care about parental leave and like you know um mm-hmm. And and hating right to work laws, like mm-hmm. I I care about that too, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um and so like you get your people together, we'll get our people together, mm-hmm. and then like you know on on these kind of these these big moments, these big demos, mm-hmm. um, these big struggles, uh, we can we can sort of combine efforts and 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 because because it is part of the same movement, mm-hmm. um, but it does have to be organized around. I mean, and this is like the real politic of it, right? Which is that you mm. have to organize around like a common set of interests. Like that's part of the work of yeah. doing politics. Yeah, a common set of self-interests. Right. As opposed to working for some kind of interests that are external. Yeah. Which is, yeah. oh, and I've never thought about it this way because yeah. this, this is maybe one of the key frictions between like how politics is understood conventionally in architecture and how we're talking about it now. Mm-hmm. Because like typically, you know, architecture school is a very progressive place. People talk about, you know, um, um, the public good and mm-hmm. sustainability and all of these things. Mm-hmm. But um, it strikes me that probably the difference is that that's all premised on just like a moral goodness like you're, like you're doing charity um it's or providing a service like we were saying earlier yeah um right yeah so like the thing that you're doing is good insofar as it helps somebody else or insofar as it meets the needs of the clients or um it can't be for its own sake it can't right. be for its own good um yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> so to like organ. So like, what are the? Oh, uh, actually, we just got a, a tweet from uh, Skyler Moran, head of Chicago Architecture Lobby. So shouts out Skyler. He said, "Don't just briefly mention the Trumpian dictionary in passing. Tell us more about the project." Okay. Cool. Yeah. Well, you can talk about it. Okay. <laughs> so um, I actually don't know about a lot about this project, um, but I think what's going on is they're building a kind of uh, lexicon of um, vocabulary that Trump uses, but kind of flipping it around and like um, uh, deconstructing a lot of what it is to like in, in the surface of movement building. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, it's kind of tongue in cheek. But yeah. also, I think we'll be kind of operative. I don't know. I've honestly been a little bit, this might be a tangent, hmm. but I've been a little bit bothered by um, the kind of like jokey way in which people have like co-opted some of his turns of phrase. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think it like it normalizes it. Yeah. But I think this is a really good. It's 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 doing the same thing, but to a different end. So I think that's well, the, the diff- glossary. Yeah, I mean, what's the different end? I mean, I think the different end is is instead of just being jokey about it, is like actually educating and 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 spurring criticality. Yeah. yeah. Um, instead of just sort of like tongue in cheek criticism. Right, which is something that we talked about a lot with reference to the wall um, and the last show. I think. Oh yeah, 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 but, yeah. Yeah. So and I'm, but I'm also I'm um, curious to. We've got a couple minutes left in the segment, but. Um, about uh, this sort of unionizing graduate workers, yeah, because um, and like outside of architecture, like the general effect that will have on the left in this country. What, mm. do, you th- what do you think? Oh, that's hmm. That's I never thought about. Um, well, I mean, I've thought about it, but I've never thought about it in such a pointed way. Um, well, I think it's been a, really incredible to see um, uh, folks in the STEM fields. Yeah. come to come to UAW. Um, and I think that's going to have a really huge kind of impact um, because the kinds of experiences that they that they have being trained to be professional scientists, professional researchers um, within um, during graduate school and and doing that while they're in a labor union will carry over. Once yeah. they become scientists and go work for, um, <laughs> you know, maybe like a federal I don't know. Maybe they'll go work for a national lab, right. and they'll bring and they'll unionize a national lab. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know, M- Marx talks often about capitalism sowing the seeds of its own destruction. Right. And um, what he meant by that was that uh, you know the economic forces uh, force people together into cities and factories, um, workers who have a common self-interest, right, against the system, mm-hmm. and um, that that will kind of in- inevitably uh, sort of lead to. Um, you know, it, uh, organizing ag- against it. Yeah, and, right. Um, I think we're like seeing that now, but it's it's kind of interest. It's an interesting thing where you have these relatively privileged workers mm-hmm. who, because of mm-hmm. the neoliberalization of the university, mm-hmm. um, but but also its relative um, autonomy, that there, there's been uh, it's been a really successful sort of breeding ground for like organizing absolutely and you have all these people who are going to be experts at it and know how to do it and um i I think i think we'll see some interesting struggles not now but five ten years down the road yeah i think there are mistakes that we can learn from in the past right like um mistakes of the 60s of like students leaving school and like getting jobs in factories right yeah Uh, (laughs) i think that's a that's that's the danger yeah um that, but we know we know now, right? I, and I think that that's especially heartening and during um, 
and and doing union organizing with graduate students is that is that we know we know what not to do yeah for sure well i think that's just about all the time we have for this segment but we'll be back in uh, just a few minutes with the mailbag where we'll answer your listener questions with ann louis and craig reschke of future firm this is buildings on air we'll be back in a couple Welcome back to Buildings on Air on WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. We're here with the mailbag, Ann Louie, Craig Reschke, Future Firm, answering listener questions as always. And Craig, how are you guys doing? Good. Thanks for having us back. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> Every show. <laughs> um, so we've got some like really good listener questions this time. Um, and I, I think... I always struggle with where to start because we've got like a really always good range of extraordinarily silly to like very interesting and serious. Um, but I guess I think where I want to start is uh, who are the architects that normal people should have heard of or should look up? Um, this is this is from Kathleen. Hi, Kathleen. Um, um, her partner, John, had heard of the Mies van der Rohe guys uh, that, <laughs> that Marianella and I were talking about, um, but she hadn't. Um, and she realized that the only architect names that she knew were Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright and Denise Scott Brown. So mm. who, who, else, who else should she know about? I guess I think that I'm so glad that Denise Scott Brown made that list. If, <laughs> if one only knows two architects to know the kind of like prime mover and shaker of both Postmodernism and feminism in architecture yeah. is is great. I think Kathleen has good friends. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so <laughs> she's been uh, educated by you guys probably against her will about <laughs> Denise Scott Brown. Um, yeah. Who, I mean, who are the normal what people that architecture know, know about? Do we know where Kathleen oh, is from? Oh, that's a really good inversion of the question. Oh. Who are the normal people that architecture know about? Because <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. We yeah. don't know about any normal people. Yeah, we just know right. weirdos like us. Yeah. Do we know where Kathleen is from? Uh, San Diego. I guess I was uh, thinking that she should look up to or look up local architects that she mm. might be interested oh, in yeah. to add to her add to her list. Yeah, I think to see what's kind of going on in the community. I guess like I, I am against in theory that we could just list five architects that, that you know that know. everyone <laughs> should know. Like we should all know Frank yeah. Gehry, Calatrava, or, you know, whatever. <laughs> Like, yes, maybe she should know two local architects who are working on spaces near where she lives. Preferably young architects that have just launched their own San firm Diego. or something. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, more south, we could say you should look at the work of Teddy Cruz and Fona Foreman. Yeah. Um, and then maybe she should know two architects working internationally. Like, well, we lost Marianella, but we should ask about Aravena, right? We should lo- talk about Elemental, right? Yeah. And uh, I- I th- yeah. yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's an interesting, like, just uh, on a meta level, right? Like, the fact that, like, wh- like, why don't people know about architects? And are we, like, okay with that? Um, you know, like, sh- should there be an obligation um, on a, for, of, of non-architects to, like, really know um, about, like, you know, these kind of big, big famous names? Yeah, well, hopefully they're reading in whatever their local newspaper is the the design column or the architecture critic or yeah. someone that they might be able to to kind of enter into that kind of conversation. Yeah. I don't know, but in this other way, I think that 
the way we, and I'm sure this is not the listener question, I'm just doing some vague generalization here, but like, I feel like the way maybe before I was interested in being an architect, I, I, I felt like I needed to know about the great architects, like yeah. I needed to know about the great painters for, I don't know, some sort of future <laughs> cocktail or dinner party that I would attend. And somebody would, I guess, like quiz me on, I don't know, like uh, right. <laughs> trying to think of who the, like what would, I don't know, yeah, Frank Lloyd Wright or like Mies or whatever. Um, but I guess it occurs to me now that those kinds of star architects are not the kind of designers and builders that we are interested in, the three of us. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's true. Um, well, let's move on to another question that, that's perhaps related to um, hustling at uh, architecture dinner parties and, and cocktail parties, <laughs> which is, uh, what should I wear to an architecture career fair? <laughs> Black. Black. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I guess <laughs> there are many, there are many uh, possible approaches. I, what, what does this? I, is there more context? I have zero context <laughs> this, for this. Is this a man or a woman? Well, doing I, I don't know. I but I could tell you or what. Or a I, person of another gender. Yes, <laughs> I could tell you what I wore to like an mm. architecture career fair, which is that like I have a suit that I never have a, a, an excuse to wear, <laughs> and so I like wore a suit, full suit with a tie clip, <laughs> and like ev- like dressed like to the nines, and I just look like such a tool bag. You showed up like looking <laughs> like a mortician. Yeah, exactly. You're like, Here I am. Well, no, Keep like it was done. like, but it was a really fashionable. Part. Uh, okay, it was a, a, a nice yeah. type fan. Right. Yeah, yeah. I feel like morticians would also be like just caked in makeup, <laughs> just like by virtue of uh, their professional expertise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're like, but I'm overdressed and yeah. I'd like a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd, I don't know. Like maybe uh, a maybe a speedo and a silver cape. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an interesting thing. Frank Lloyd Wright uh, wore the a cape. cape. Yeah, what a what a tool bag. <laughs> what. Were capes uh, were were, were capes common at Frank Lloyd during Frank Lloyd Wright's era? I have no idea. I have no clue. Like, was that a common sartorial accessory, or was that like part it of has his to plan? be more common than it is today? Mm. Someone should bring the cape back. Mm. I'm not going to do it. I, I have a cape-like jacket. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I have a cape-like jacket that maybe I'll start to bring yeah. back, but it's like it's so nice outside today. I, we we don't have I, we have no good advice. Yeah. I'm the most poorly dressed person. Like I yeah, <laughs> everything yeah. I'm wearing is from Uniqlo or that I found in my you know drawer from ten years ago. <laughs> We're not sartorially thoughtful. Well, I think the <laughs> but maybe the honest or like most straightforward answer to the question is just like is wear something that you're really comfortable in so you can concentrate on. Uh, talking to people at the career fair and talking about your work yeah. and not sh- being fidgety and. In the suit you never wear, right? I'm yeah. I'm sick of the architecture stereotypes. Of, yeah, and uh, how you dress. Wear something that represents yourself, yeah. right? Like you always want to be hired based on who you are, not on this version of yourself that you yeah. borrowed for a career afternoon, <laughs> right. and then you're forced to wear that suit for the rest of your life, or you have to buy more suits, <laughs> or I don't know. It's like a vicious cycle, right? It Did is you a vicious buy more cycle. Suits? No, um, but I, I think <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, 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 I'll admit that I do have this kind of like weird. It's, uh, I, it's I, calling it an identity crisis is like too strong, <laughs> way, way too strong. <laughs> but like, um, you know, I, I do feel like I have to kind of like wear a costume a lot. You know, mm. like, um, I, like, I don't know what I would dress like if I didn't kind of have to be mm. like performative about like you know being an architect a little bit. 
um, which is a weird yeah. thing for for me to say. Like that doesn't really jive with my per- personality, but. Um, it is like a kind of element of the, the architecture culture that's like, you know, you wear, be cool, wear, wear cool socks. Yeah, I, I participate. Pants. Like, I have a uniform. And then yeah. one day at school, I went to a lecture and I was really tired and I just wore, like, not the uniform, not like the black dress with yeah. a shape. And, and no and one then, failed you? No, the opposite happened. The visiting lecturer said I looked like a student. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, whatever, I look like a student no matter what I wear. But I, in that moment, I was like, oh, I guess I do have to wear this stupid uniform every time I yeah. go perform my job as a teacher and an right. architect outside so of the I, I like having a uniform. It makes it like much easier to keep right. going with the day. But yeah. small acts of rebellion. No, no more all black. <laughs> um, anyway, so <laughs> next... Next question. Um, this is a good question. Why do individual architects, uh, and this is from Brianna out in the Bay Area, why do individual architects have different individual billing rates that differ across the office and have to log hours on projects? Like, why not, hi, client, this will cost $100,000 or whatever it is, and then the money will be given to the firm and then distributed to uh, employees uh, with salaries? Because like, the... Uh, the firm needs some way to keep track of how much they are spending. So at the end of the project, they know if they got paid $100,000 for the project, did they spend more or less than that? Yeah. And everyone's, the hourly rate for everyone in the office has built into it both that person's salary as well as the overhead for the office. Yeah. I mean, the hourly rate thing is very strange, right? Like, just like the broader idea of like how, why we do, why we work in that way, like, how, mm. and how we conceive of our value, right? Like, but isn't kind of? I think hourly <laughs> is the best way to think about our mm. value, right? That like, if you spend t- ten, if you are doing, you could do a house that you spend. 20 hours on or you could do a house that you spend 2,000 hours on. Right. And there should be a fee difference between the two. Yeah. But I, I wonder if there's not a better way to measure like the sort of um, like intellectual like effort that's put in. Yeah, yes. I mean, I, I, I'm sure architecture lobby thinks so. <laughs> I mean, I, I Foam, Ryan and, and Kaya talk about um, kind of like the possibility of building equity into a fee, right? So that like kind of whatever value we are depositing these, depositing, I don't know, embedding into these buildings might come back to us through uh, like return over time. I mean, I think, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think that there might be alternatives like that. Mm. Yeah, but I think the question, I, I suspect the question is like, why does when I see the rate that my office is billing for me, why is it higher than what I'm making? Right. It's because it's including overhead yeah. and profit and, you know, your insurance right. or whatever and so forth. Like I know that the billable rate at the last firm I worked for was like, um, you know, it was like a hundred something dollars an hour and I got paid far, 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 far less than that, which is bizarre. <laughs> Do you, I mean, is the, is the issue you felt like um, you wanted to be part of understanding that math? Yeah. I mean, I feel like, you know, when we talk about wage transparency, we're like almost we literally mean like talking about how much people are making mm-hmm. um, and comparing that because it, it starts to address issues of equity when you know how much pe- other people are making in the firm. But I'd, I'd also like to consider an expanded version of that. That is like, you know, what what is the breakdown? Because I, I think... Um, you know, in left economics, right, like people mm-hmm. talk about exploitation. And um, I think um, 
people it's really easy to understand that as being like a primarily moralistic sort of thing like you're you're being mm. exploited mm. but it, it is an economic term right it's the the gap between what you are getting paid for and like sort of the the profit that someone else is earning by buying buying your labor and selling the product of it at a greater you know um at a, at a profit right but yeah. i suspect the simple or uh, 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 maybe another way to kind of consider looking at it is that I think most most offices have no idea. Like if your rate at your previous firm was $100 an hour mm. and you were getting paid 33% of that or I mean, I don't know what. Yeah. I have a feeling that no one knows what the other part is, right? Right. Like they're kind of assigning numbers because that, that number is actually uh, – it's just like an internal record keeping kind of guesstimate. Yeah. And it's not until the end of the year when they total everything up and see if the firm made any yeah, money. That's true. Or presumably every month. <laughs> I think it's, uh, it seems to be not that precise. I yeah. Guess. Um, well, here's another question uh, from Lindsay. What are the day to day operations of an architect? How much of it is designing artistically? How much of it is <laughs> client facing? And how much is kind of working out the technical and engineering aspects of the building? <laughs> it's 100% dancing. We just, <laughs> we just dance from morning to night. It's I just, sweet. sorry, this, this three options were like maybe not how I would describe my day. But, uh, well, how would you? I, I know. I, I'm trying try to think about it. Um, I, I think probably it really. It really depends on what kind of office you work at, what your how you define architectural practice, and you know what what role you serve in that office. I think I think yeah. uh, what would be surprising to people outside the profession, or what was surprising to me when I uh, in different offices is like the total range of different things that you can do. Like at one office, you may seem to have like a hundred percent different job description than a, at another one. Yeah, you know, like one year of my life, I just spent organizing, you know, our Revit families. I mean, okay, I did more than that, but there was a lot of times spent organizing Revit families. I don't do what that are at Revit all. families for our Kiefer, folks who don't know. You know, what Revit I know what Revit families are. <laughs> I want to hear you guys talk you about Revit families. You can explain it since I organize your <laughs> Revit families. Revit families, I guess you can think of as like a. Uh, a small model inside a bigger model. A digital so model. Yes. Oh, a digital uh, it's model. like a little part. It's like when you're baking and you first have to like mix the sugar and flour and all the dry ingredients together <laughs> as like one thing. That's like the family. And then the cake at the end is the is the full hmm. the full shebang. That's a good way to describe it. It is really good way to describe it. Yeah. And <laughs> good job, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's like one of the tricks, like uh, tricks of the trade, right? Is we we have all of these little models that that get passed around and posted online mm. that help us draw things faster. Mm. Um, Do you think that's right, though? That I I feel that architects are broader in or like the the range of tasks that any given architect does is broader than some other professions. Not all other professions, but some other professions. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's just so many possibilities. Um, and I think, you know, I've, I've met people who are like, oh, like, until I met you, like, I didn't realize that, like, architects, like, knew about, like, ph philosophy or, like, you know, like, these sort of, like, bigger questions because the the range of education is pretty intense. Like, you might be reading Deleuze in, in one class and then in the, <laughs> the next class, you know, you're learning about how air conditioning works, mm. um, which is pretty wild and then like you know that's just the education so you you know project that 5 10 20 30 40 years mm. and you know you see all the different possibilities that that 
that could happen. You could、mm. be writing a book. You could be, you know, figuring out how to insulate buildings better, make them more sustainable. Doing very technical. You could be doing all of those things, right?、Mm. Um, and architects do do all of those things. Isn't it possible that lawyers also read Deleuze and then also have to go and <laughs> figure out like bankruptcy law or some、mm. other like. Mundane part of yeah, contracts. Yeah, I think I brought it up on the show before, but like I, there was this story、um, about like how the Israeli defense forces like re- read Deleuze, right,、mm. uh, and like you know、uh, understood the idea of the rhizome and, and used it to like become more efficient at like urban combat, which、um, is terrifying. Know, is terrifying, right? And, and like sort of an、uh, undermining of you know the ways in which、uh, like. The left operationalizes those ideas. You, you can you can argue that the right has actually operationalized some of those weird left theories、um, way better <laughs> than than the left has. But that's kind of I don't know if that's a tangent or not.、Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I I guess the I mean like yes, I, I Hollow Land. Is terrifying, but I also think like Weitzman is doing some. Is that where you're you're learning about the IDF、uh, mm. uh, reading to lose?、Yeah. Like I think Weitzman is probably like, like this is an argument that is like useful for his. Book that there is like some way to understand Deleuze like touching the ground through military and spatial governance,、mm. but like on the other hand, like military always acts in this way that. I can't necessarily be rationalized by the way, kind of like we think or act. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is like, does Deleuze inform how we organize HVAC systems? <laughs> like, if you're a Weitzman, <laughs> like that is a useful way to think about it. Yeah. But on the other hand, like, is that? I don't know. Is is that a kind of like way of thinking that 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 keeps us too far from too far from everyday life? I mean, I just whatever to lose a Guattari. I have like a yeah. I have like a, a anger about that. So that's what's why your、I'm、anger? Thinking, that's interesting. Like it's just like illegible. I mean, <laughs> right. And the people who write the people who write about them are、yeah. often illegible. I'm not. I'm not saying like ecological thinking、I、is、agree. not useful, but、yeah. <laughs> like it's it's very、yeah. difficult. And a lot of people who like kind of spin off that kind of thinking are like. The I, whatever I just have been editing a piece that talks about like ritornellos and flows that is very very hard and I think could be could be more accessible. Yeah, I guess on on that note, right? Like,、uh, there's a question here about how you see your response because both all three of us teach as、mm-hmm. as we've mentioned on the show before.、Um, but how do you see your responsibility and role as an architectural educator? Because I think that might feed into this kind of conversation that we're having a little bit. Hmm. <laughs>、uh, that's that's kind of difficult. Deader, deader, deader. You didn't accidentally turn your radio off. We just don't know how to evaluate this part of our lives yet. I、yeah. didn't know that teaching came with responsibility. I thought it was all fun and games. I mean,、What? it is very fun, though. It is. It is fun. very fun. It is fun and rewarding. Um, can you say again? Can you read qu- the question again? <laughs> I'm、yeah. like a politician saying, like, can, can you ask me that question on healthcare again while I try to remember what yeah, they told me to say? To turn this into an angry town hall, <laughs> yeah, yeah.、Um, with, with your students. Oh God, what a nightmare! As,、uh, <laughs> but how do you how do you see your responsibility and role as an architectural educator? I, 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 for me,、uh, recently we were at a lecture at SAIC, and the the visiting lecturers,、uh, Todd Williams, Billy Sen,、uh, asked the students a question. They said, "What what got you into design?" 
Um, and the students answered and they had like pretty, pretty broad reasons. And one of them asked me later, you know, why did you get into design? Yeah. And I had um, lots of kind of like vague and overly abstract answers that I realized just reflected how I feel about architecture today, about mm. its role and its scope. And then if I really think about it, it's because when I was 18, I just had this um, incredible architecture teacher. I went to like a shop in technical high school um, who just really inspired me and kind of introduced me to architecture, but also to like books and music. And and I think she kind of like showed me the power of architecture to to render change in the world and also kind of like translate some of the the agendas I had into into things that could affect or or help or serve other people. Yeah. Um, and so I think that for me, being an architectural educator, like I, I guess I would want to continue that work that she did with me when I was eighteen. I mean, that that sounds so cheesy, but I no, that's I think a that perfectly kind of, that's great answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you know? Do you know? Uh, for me, I think it's about uh, finding a way to encourage students to develop their own voice, yeah, so that they can they can bring their own ideas into the world, yeah. And I think that that is the thing that I. I actually struggle with most as a teacher is kind of getting, getting students to be more conversant and um, and kind of put their their own ideas out there into the world. Yeah, that's good. Those are good answers. Is that how you feel? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I guess you're right. This is a harder question than I thought. <laughs> now that you turn the tables on me, thanks. <laughs> Sorry, I guess you're not supposed to ask the mailbag asker the question, but you yeah. included yourself. I did. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I, I I see I see it as like a um, yeah, helping helping students figure out how to use the tools of of architecture mm. to greater ends. Right. I mean, I I think um, or or. Or not? I mean, on, on some level, um, yeah. I don't know. I, I want to impart a kind of criticality, right? I just like open open up all of the possibilities that you, uh, for for students and and get them to really like reevaluate and re-question a lot of their assumptions that they have about the world. Mm. I think architecture is a really useful tool for that because it encompasses mm. sort of like all of these different things. Like we were just talking about air conditioning. And like deep theory and everything in between, mm. um, so it's a, it's a really good um, sort of tool for for developing that kind of mentality. Mm. Um, but do you think we have a responsibility to help our students get jobs? Um, that, I mean, I assume yeah. that's the the elephant in the room. Um, I don't know. I don't think so. I I mean, I on some level, like you know, you you want to help students put food on their plates, right? Mm. I mean, I, I think it's like a reality of the world that we have to deal with. But like, uh, and and on some sense, that's kind of like our responsibility just as people to like help other people out in that way. Um, but also, I don't think the role of architectural education should be about employability. I don't mm. think it just should be about like preparing students a critically to enter into the workforce. Mm. Um, I think that there's a way in which you can address those issues mm. of um, um, the problematics of work and practice um, without simply like indoctrinating students into it. Mm. And, I, and I think a lot of students kind of internalize this anxiety, right? Because mm. like from now, from like the time you're in middle school, like it's all about like building a CV and a resume and everything else. Mm. And like, it's all about being employable all the time. So even if you're like not wor looking for work, you're always looking for work. And that, that to me, like, really undermines, like, um, uh, I don't know, 
like being in person. (laughs) (laughs) So we want to teach them to be people. We want to teach them to be people. I mean, they probably, they already Uh, are people. They already are people. (laughs) But yeah, we got to, we got to wrap up. Um, Anne, Craig, thanks. We didn't get to any silly questions this time. Or Or rehab questions. Those are my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get there. We'll get there next, next time on Buildings on Air, first Saturdays of the month here on Lumpen Radio. This has been Billings on Air. Thanks to our producer, Jamie, for making the boards run. And uh, we'll see you guys next month. Thanks.